Hey there, this is Pastor John Ware, lead pastor of Lifehouse Newport News, a church that exists to help all people experience life change through Christ. Thank you for joining us today on our podcast. We hope it inspires you and gives you perspective to see how God is moving in your life. Now let's get to today's episode. John and Kristen here. We just want to say good morning, especially to our first, second, and third time guests. We're so honored that you are here worshiping with us. Uh, Kristen and I were actually here in Jacksonville, Florida. Go Jaguars. You know that's how we do here. But we're actually here in Jacksonville celebrating 10 years of marriage. We've made it. We got 70 more left. But uh, man, you are in great hands today. We have Pastor Fred Michaud preaching today. Pastor Fred is City Life Church has been so generous to us as we've been getting LifeHouse started. Just, just their generosity and love and support towards us has just been incredible. And Pastor Fred leads that church, and he is an incredible preacher and teacher of God's Word. LifeHouse family, you are in for a treat today. So would you please help me in welcoming Pastor Fred as he comes up and continues our summer road trip through the Bible series. I appreciate all those kind words, but I'm not sure I like the, really the video because it kind of makes us all want to be somewhere else than we are right here, right? Right? I'm, I'm, I'm standing there watching like, I'd kind of like to be at the beach right now myself, right? So, hey, so I, I'm excited to be here. It, it's, it's especially uh, meaningful because our church started here almost 12 years ago in the same movie theater, right here. And, uh, and so coming back today... Uh, and this morning, we were here also for your launch service. Just brings back so many wonderful memories. And so you all have a, a, a great start. I love John. I love this church. His, I love his heart for people. He's exactly what this city needs. I know some of you, you're here this morning, uh, and you're taking a chance because you've been hurt by church before. And I hope you keep taking a chance here at Lifehouse in Newport News. Uh, you, you will never truly experience hope until you're ready to risk disappointment. And I know some of you, you've risked disappointment before, and that's what you got. But I'm telling you, this church, it's worth the risk. It's worth the risk. So I hope you keep coming. I hope you do growth track. I hope you get involved. Think about all the people that have been here early this morning. Nick on the soundboard, LaRon with the production team, Andrea. How about the worship team? We can give them some love, right? So good. So good. If you leave here every Sunday and your heart is full because of how you're ministered to, I'm telling you, when you get involved and you begin to be a part of helping others get ministered to, you're, you're, you're not just going to leave with a heart that's full. It's going to leave overflowing, leave overflowing. Hey, a couple, just a couple of quick stories of, of, uh, of my favorites from when our church uh, planted here. I remember uh, early on, we had only been here for a few months uh, here in the theater, and there was, I don't know, it was probably about a size of a crowd just like this, and there was a family that had been coming for several weeks, and their adult son was visiting, and about halfway through the message, he got up and went out, which is not uncommon, right? People have to use the restroom, and, and, uh, but when he comes back in, he's got this huge plate of nachos and a big soda. Yeah, 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 because the concession stand was open, right? And so I don't know about you, but for, there's snacking rules. Can we agree on that? Either everybody snacks or nobody snacks. Because if just one person is eating when nobody else is, they might as well be eating gravel. And so I don't even remember the rest of what I preached. All I could hear was Ryan Matthews just chewing on those gravelly nacho chips. And so there have been some new additions here. I think you could very well be the only church in America that has a sign on your bathroom that says no alcohol beyond this point. And uh, that alone could get some of your friends to church. 
I'm just saying. So, hey, my favorite memory, though, is when uh, Zach, the manager, loves Zach, the manager here at, at, uh, at the theater. He was with us when we were here. And uh, I'll never forget, as we were leaving one Sunday morning, I looked back, and over the, the theater marquee, we had a special sign made, so it slipped in where the, usually the movie name is, and it said the City Life Church. And he was sliding that out, and he was putting the movie name that was getting ready to play in here after, and it was Evil Has a Destiny. I was like, yeah, that's a little bit of a contrast, right? And so I'm, I'm not a big scary movie guy, not because I, I uh, have some, some theological uh, reason against him, it's because I'm a scaredy cat and I would not be able to sleep. And so I don't know much about that movie, but I'm assuming it was a scary movie. And I just, all the way home I was laughing because probably in some of those frightening parts of that movie, people were in here after we had church and I, I think God's presence was still lingering. They were probably like, I know I should be afraid, but I have this incredible sense of peace and I just don't understand why, Yeah. So some, some favorite memories, and I know you're going to have memories uh, as you move through your history and your life here uh, at LifeHouse. So, hey, I'm excited about this uh, sermon series that you're in. Uh, let, me, let me just read you some facts about the Bible. The Bible was written over a period of roughly 2,000 years by 40 different authors from three different continents who wrote in three different languages, and these facts alone make the Bible one of a kind. But there are many more amazing details that defy natural explanation. Shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, prophets, a military general, a cupbearer, a priest, all penned portions of Scripture. They had different immediate purposes for writing, whether recording history, giving spiritual or moral instruction, or pronouncing judgment. They composed their works from palaces, prisons, the wilderness, places of exile, writing history, law, poetry, prophecy, and proverbs. In the process, sometimes they laid bare their personal emotions, expressing anger, frustration, but also joy and love. There are many different writers of the Bible, but there's only one ultimate author, the Spirit of God. If you're looking for some more information, maybe this series inspires you to learn more about Scripture, I would encourage you to pick up the resource. It's Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. It's one of the most accurate explanations of how we got the Bible that we have today that we show, so cherish. All of the Old Testament has one ultimate meta-narrative. Meta-narrative is a word that means it's the narrative that is the umbrella, and it creates the context for every other theme and storyline that there is. The Old Testament has one ultimate meta-narrative, and, that, and that this, it's this, that mankind is desperate for a Savior. We're born into this world with a wretched condition, separated from God, spiritually dead, and we cannot save ourselves. But God has a plan, and His name is Jesus. So in, in this series of, of, of this summer of road tripping through the Bible, this morning where we're going to spend our time is we're going to do a little road trip through the Old Testament, looking to see where we find Christ, this ultimate meta-narrative, in the first half of Scripture, 66 books, 39 of them, Genesis to Malachi, and Jesus is the ultimate theme all the way through. Somebody say in the history. We're going to look at finding Jesus in the history, and then we're also going to look at finding him in the language, in, in the history. First 21 verses of Psalm 22, if you've never read those, I would encourage you to check those out sometime this week. When you read them, like I did the first time, I remember I made a vow of devotion to Christ in December of, of 1999. I was 23 years old, and I began to read the Bible. And I remember when I read through Psalms, and I got to this Psalm, Psalm 22, I had the feeling that this must have been written after the crucifixion of Christ because of the prophetic details that are there. Even down to the casting of the lots for Jesus' clothes. 
We find in Isaiah 7:41 talking about the virgin birth. This is all finding Jesus in the history of the Old Testament. You have Micah 5, verse 2, speaking of Christ being born in Bethlehem. You have Isaiah 53, one of the most famous texts in the Old Testament that talks about his atoning death. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace upon him. Then you got Genesis 18 and 32. Now, there's some fancy words that describe what these chapters are, but they're theophanies or Christophanies. Theophany is the Greek word for theos, for God, and then the Greek word for appearance. And these are actual accounts where Jesus physically, in a spiritual sense, right, in a spiritual form, appeared in the Old Testament before he was born into the world in the first century, Genesis 18 and 32. But my favorite story of Jesus in the Old Testament comes through Exodus. So you've got Moses, right? He's leading the Israelites out of Egypt. And most biblical historians agree that there were over a million people. Now, I don't know about you, but road trips with just your family can be hard enough. Yeah? So you can imagine traveling somewhere with over a million people. And it's not just a million people. It's all the livestock that's needed to sustain them because there were no Wawa's and Walmarts, right? Can we agree on that back then? So they needed to take with them what they were going to need to sustain themselves. So it's this massive caravan of people. It's over a million, a million people with all of these animals in tow and they're traveling out into the desert. Now they get only but so far and then they're out of water. So the people begin to complain. Moses, did you bring us here to die? So Moses goes and he prays and God says, Moses, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take that staff that you want to hit those people over the head with because you're so frustrated with them, right? And, and I want you to take that staff, the same one that you used to touch the Red Sea to see it part. I want you to strike this rock and water's going to flow. Now, if you're familiar with this story based on your generation right now, you either see Charlton Heston or Christian Bale, right? How, how many Charlton Hestons do I have in the room, right? Like me, I got my hand up. How many Christian Bales? Yeah. And for some of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you should come to this theater more often when church isn't here, right? Okay, so, so depending on who, what generation you are, it's who you see, but here, here's Moses. He's standing, and, and most of the movie depictions that we see or vacation Bible school that we grew up in, we, we see this with this rock, and it's like there's a trickle of water that comes out. There wasn't a trickle of water that came out of there. How, how long would it have taken to refresh over a million people with a water fountain? Right? How about there's two water fountains out here. How about we go find a million people and see how long it takes for them to get a drink of water? And it didn't just sustain, sustain the people. It, sustained, it sustained the wildlife. So it wasn't a trickle. It was a torrent. It was a river that flows out of this rock into this desert so they could be sustained for their journey. Now you fast forward through time 40 years. 40 years. More time than we have to tell in this sermon today, but the generation of people that left, they had to die because of their unbelief, and God didn't want that carried into the promised land. And so the Joshua generation, as so it's become to be called, comes, and they find themselves in a similar situation. Not having any water, about to perish. God speaks to Moses, and he says, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. Now, if you remember from this story, right, he says, I want you to strike the rock. But now he's telling Moses, I want you to speak to the rock, and I want you to strike the rock. And so Moses goes back out to the rock. Now, this is a different rock in a different place, and he doesn't speak to it. What does he do? Yeah, he strikes it again. He strikes the rock. Now, he didn't do what God said, but sometimes when leaders make mistakes, God still moves because he cares for the people. 
right? And so water still flows. They're still sustained, but there is a punishment that comes down from God to Moses that seems a little bit severe. How many of you have ever punished your children more than what you should have because you were angry, right? But that's not what happens in this story because God is perfect. But that's how we read the story because we have a tendency to project our own issues on God, right? And so we think he must have been having a bad day, the angels were probably irritating him in some way, and, and so here he is, and he, he overreaches in his punishment, but God never overreaches. So it causes us to ask the question, why would God be so severe in his punishment? Because his punishment was, Moses, you're now not going to enter into the promised land. Out of all that he's been through, after all that he's done, he's one of the most remarkable leaders that history has ever seen, and now God says, you're going to die in the desert. The reason why there's such a severe punishment here is because Moses is messing with the prophetic story of Jesus Christ that God is trying to reveal to the world. Bob Sorge, one of the great Pentecostal theologians of our lifetime, teaches that the reason why Moses was supposed to strike the rock the first time is because it was the prophetic imagery of Jesus being stricken for our sin. It was the picture of Jesus being broken and taking on the sins of the world for you and for me. As it says in Isaiah, our sins be as scarlet, but they be as white as snow. Right? So Jesus dies for you. He dies for me in the striking of the rock and the living water that flows from Christ. And then when you get 40 years later, Moses is supposed to speak to the rock because God is revealing to the world, even though they don't yet understand, that one day when Jesus dies, he's only going to have to die once for all the sin of the world. He doesn't have to be crucified for every generation, only just one time. And then every generation after his initial crucifixion, then we're able to come and speak to the living rock of Christ through a vow of devotion, and the same water will flow to us as it did to those who were there in the first century. There is a prophetic story all throughout the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi that God is trying to reveal to the world that you and I are desperate for a Savior. We cannot save ourselves, and Jesus is the plan for us. Even you here today, all that you have to do is speak to Him. That's why Paul in Romans talks about if we confess with our mouth and believe with our heart that we'll be saved. It's why the Bible so often talks about this, this confession that, that you and I have to make. The rock wants to flow living water to you, but you've got to come and speak to it, and it will fill your life. I share this story with you, not just so that you can see that Jesus is in the Old Testament. I share this story with you so that you can begin to realize that God wants to use you the same way that he used Moses. You see, God wants to use your life to reveal Jesus to your world. Part of the reason why he created you, part of the reason why he put you on this earth is so that as you come into your own understanding and your own revelation of who Christ is, there are people that are supposed to learn about who Jesus is through watching you. See, in the same way that you learn about who Jesus is by looking at the life of Moses, someone who lived in history, as you look at the life of Peter, as you look at the life of Paul, as we look into the life of this book, God doesn't just want people to learn about Christ through looking in here. He wants him to, people to learn about Christ by looking into you. 
your family, your neighbors, all of the people that you're interacting with day in and day out. God wants to use you to tell the story of Christ. It should give you great hope, but just like with Moses, it should also give us a sense of awe because it is a sacred responsibility. From Genesis to Malachi, the stories, the history, the geography, the songs, the law, the poetry, and the prophets all point to God's plan for Jesus to be the Savior of the world. I hope that you wake up every day this week asking God the question, God, how do you want to use me today to reveal Christ to the world? Somebody say, in the language. So we, look, so we, so we find Jesus in the history, but you also find Jesus in the actual language of the Bible. I, I like to say that every part of the Bible is intentional. The stories, the language, the examples, the songs, everything in there was put there for a reason to teach us about the kingdom of God. There are over 10 words in the Hebrew language for hope, each having a subtle emphasis different from the next. So English is more of a contextual language, which means that we might have one word, and then based on how we use it, you've got to figure out what I mean. You tracking with me? So we, so we might have one word for love, and when I say I love sweet tea, and then I say I love my wife, you understand that I'm not saying the same thing if I ha- I'm going to have a great marriage. You with me? It's, it's about context. But some language, there's a greater specificity. Hebrew is one of those languages. Greek is one of those languages. It's why God chose to use those languages to write Scripture. Over ten words for hope in the Bible. There's waiting, expecting, trusting, confidence. There's refuge. There's a word that, that means childlike outlook. And then there's some that just, they just simply mean hope. There's, there's an intuitive. So when I say the word hope, there's a, an understanding of what that word represents. And there's words that are like that, that are just basic. But there's also a word in Hebrew that's used for hope that also means cord. And at first it seems a little odd, but as you think about it, you, you begin to realize, of course it is. This idea of a cord or a rope is really the perfect kind of metaphor for hope, especially once you begin to partner that word with the chapter on hope and faith, right, in Hebrews 11. It's called the great chapter on faith, the Faith Hall of Fame, and Hebrews 1 is given to us as the definition of faith because that's what we've been taught, but it's not just the definition of faith, it's also the definition of hope because it says faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. The faith part's been overpopularized, and that's overshadowed the hope meaning of this verse, but this is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible that teach us about hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. And when you begin to look in the Hebrew language and that hope also is synonymous with cord, we begin to understand why hope is used there in connection with faith. Because hope keeps me tethered and connected to the belief that when I'm facing a situation or circumstance that seems impossible, I'm connected and tethered to the belief that God can still do something. Of course it's cord. Of course that's an important word for hope. We see this word cord that's a synonym for hope the first time appearing in the Bible in Joshua chapter 2, 17 to 18. Joshua 2, 17 to 18. It says, before they left, the men told her, we will be bound by the oath that we have taken only if you follow these instructions. 
Now, if you're familiar with the storyline, you know that Moses has now died. Uh, Aaron and Miriam, the, that generation, right? There's only one person of that generation, Caleb. That's an incredible story, an incredible study in the Bible that gets to enter into the promised land with the Joshua generation. Jericho stands in the way, right? If you've seen Veggie Tales, you know how this plays out, right? They're marching around the city. The walls come down. But before they did that, they sent in some spies, and the spies, they, they found an advocate. They found a helper in a prostitute by the name of Rahab. And Rahab realizes, right, the Israelites are going to take, this city is going to fall. And so she makes an agreement that when you come into the city, please, I will help you get out of the city if you promise to me that you will not destroy my family. So this is what the spies say. They say, when we come into the land, you must leave a scarlet rope. It's the Hebrew word for hope. A scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. And all of your family members, your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your relatives must be inside the house. So when the army comes to destroy the city, they see this rope, and it's a sign that this family, this family, although death is all around, that they will be saved. Now, you might be asking the question, well, Fred, that's word is used for rope, but it's not really used for hope. And you're right. And it might cause you to ask the question, well, where does the word hope actually appear for the first time in the Bible? And it's an interesting question because it takes a lot longer than I think that it should. Because you get through all of Genesis. I mean, if you've read through all of Genesis, the word hope. Now, can we just agree the word hope as a concept in Christianity? It's a big deal. Right? It's, it's one of the main ones. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about faith, hope, and love. And I would agree that those are the three biggest. But I, if I had to pick a fourth one, I'm, I'm probably picking hope. And so you, you get through all of Genesis. The word hope is not in there. It's not. How about Exodus? Genesis, Exodus, you get through all of Exodus. Not one time is the word mentioned in Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Now, many of you might think that hope belongs there because when you try to read through the Bible in the year, you give up when you give to the book of Exodus, so you need some hope, right? And maybe we should just, you should scratch that out of your Bible and change the name Leviticus to hope, and it might help you get through it, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books, which is called the Torah, which is the basis and the foundation of Judaism. The word hope does not appear, in the, not one time, not once. And if you're reading a translation that puts hope in there, they're reading that into the text. It does not appear. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Nope. We're six books in. You might say, well, Fred, that word is in there. Yes, but it's used as rope. It's not used as hope. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. How about Judges? Gideon, Samson, Deborah. All of these incredible stories. No hope. Not one time. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Eight books in, and hope appears for the first time. When a word appears in the Bible for the first time, it's significant because of the hermeneutical principle, which is the study of biblical interpretation. It's called the law of first mention. And when God uses something for the first time, he's creating a context to understand that thing through the rest of Scripture. There's a reason why I think that he doesn't use it until Ruth, because God kind of likes the dramatic pause. And so he's building and building and building and building, and then all of a sudden, he drops it in there. Here it is, Ruth 1, 12. 
Return home, my daughters, and go on, for I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons. Now, there's a, a lot of meaning in there that's more time than what we have, but you can read that story for yourself and begin to find the context for why this woman is saying to her daughter-in-laws to leave her because her situation is really hopeless. And it's interesting to me that God picks a story of hopelessness to insert the word hope for the first time because what she's saying is, I have no hope. I like that God uses it that way because for you and I, many times in our life, Hope becomes something important to us, not because we have found it, but because we have lost it. I love that the word for hope here that's used for the first time isn't just any of the ten words in the Hebrew language. It's the word for cord. And there's a reason why God uses the word for cord. Is because if you were a Jewish person growing up as a child centuries ago and, and these stories were being taught to you, you would have understood all of these words that could be used for hope. And because you were also familiar, you would be familiar with the story of Joshua and the fall of Jericho, you would know that when this word drops in Hebrew Scripture, that it's the same word that's connected to the story of Joshua. And that's important for us as Christians because God is trying to create a tether itself. Right, The idea of hope being a cord, sometimes God's connecting through the language of the Bible and what He's doing here, He's connecting the story of Christ in the Old Testament. Because as you look from Ruth back to the story of Jericho, what you begin to realize is that Rahab the prostitute who helped to rescue the spies, guess whose mother she is? She's the mother of Boaz who becomes the redeemer of Ruth in the story that we're looking at. And then the story gets even better because as you move through Scripture and then you get to Matthew 1, 1 through 16, you find the genealogy of Christ. And there's only four women mentioned. And guess who two of them are? Rahab and Ruth. God, through the language of Scripture, is trying to say to you and trying to say to me that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And there is a hope that you will never experience in this life until you allow your life to be tethered and connected to Christ as your Savior. Jesus in the language of the Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi, everything that you read, all the stories that are there are pointing you to Him. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. As they do, I want to share this thought with you. All of the Old Testament has one ultimate meta narrative that mankind is desperate for a Savior. We're born into this world with a wretched condition, separated from God, spiritually dead. We cannot save ourselves, but God has a plan, and His name is Jesus. So maybe because you've been with us this morning, that you're going to leave here today and you're thinking to yourself as you begin to pick up the Bible that you're going to have a better sense of being able to find Christ in there.
Maybe it's some of those verses that, that we reference. You're going to be checking them out this week. Maybe if you have a routine in your life, and I, I hope you do, where you're reading the Bible throughout the week, maybe you're going to choose to read some of those, especially Psalm 22. You should check it out. Maybe some of these stories. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, friend, I don't know any of these stories. Maybe you're going to go to Ruth and begin to read that story. And as you read it, you're going to begin to see Christ in there, maybe like you never have before. But at the end of the day, it's not really about whether or not you can find Christ in this book. It's about whether or not you can find Christ in yourself. It's about whether or not you look into your own heart and do you, do you see Jesus there? Maybe your story is like my story. I was raised in the church. I had great parents. They loved God. I, I did not have a witness of hypocrisy in my home. For some of you, you've run from Christ and you've run from the church because you had maybe parents in a home life and, and right, they pretended to be somebody at church, but then they were somebody really different at home. And that caused you to say, I never want to be that. And so you ran in the opposite direction. That, that wasn't my story. I had great examples of Christianity, but I still had nothing that, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I had bought into this lie. I had bought into this belief that, that, that I had to be willing to give up everything really worth doing in this life if I wanted to go to heaven. And what I realized now was that every time that God says no to me, every time I discover a new boundary in Scripture and Christianity, it's not because God is trying to rob me of pleasure. It's because He's trying to protect me from mediocrity. If you're looking for a church that's going to present to you a God that conforms to you, you're looking for the wrong thing. You want to find a church that's going to challenge you to conform to Him. And maybe this morning as we've been talking about Christ, as you look into your own life, you don't find him there. As you look back into the story of your life, maybe you cannot find a moment in time where you've made a vow of devotion to Christ. I know for me, I came out of college with a degree in business economics, and my parents were so excited when I got a job as a bartender. Like, woohoo! Right? But it was in that bar, one Saturday night, pouring drinks that God asked me a question. Band was playing, people were hammered, right? Parties just raging. And all of a sudden, through all of that noise, I just felt in my heart, this question came. I've never heard his audible voice, but I like to say I feel his voice and I felt his voice for the very first time. And he said, Fred, do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? That's where it started for me. And maybe this morning, that's where it's gonna start for you. Now, I've been around church enough to know that if you start a conversation with God, it's going to last for a lifetime. So I didn't want to answer that question. So weeks went by. Months went by. That question just kept waiting for me. And all of a sudden, I said, you know, I, I really do believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And this was the next thing that God said to me. He didn't ask me to change. My life was ugly. He didn't ask me to change a thing about my life. That's what I thought. But that's not what came. He said, Fred, if you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Don't you think you should at least take the time to read what he had to say? Fair enough, right? So I opened up the book of John. It was in the fall of 1990, and that was my journey into Christianity. That's where I found my hope. I'm just going to invite you to bow your heads right where you are. Let's just, can we just create a moment of privacy for people around us? Let's just create a moment of privacy for people that are here. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else, right? We've all seen it on TV or been in services, right, where the pastor asks you to do one thing and they trick you into doing something else and they trick you into do it, right? I'm not going to, I'm just, this is just between you and God. If, if you're here this morning and you would say, Fred, as I look into my life, I cannot find a moment in time where I've made a vow of devotion to Christ. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand where you are. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. Just, this is just between you and him. 
This is just between you and him. I'm just going to ask you to slip your hand up right where you are. Right where you are. Father, we pray for the people that are in this room, God. Whether their hand is raised or not. Some there just raising it in the privacy of their own moment. Father, I pray that you would bring them into a moment, you would bring them into a time, and you would bring them into a place where they'd be ready to make a vow of devotion to you. Father, I pray for, the, for people that are here, maybe they want to learn more about what this means to make a vow of devotion to Christ, what it means to not just find Jesus in the scripture, but to find Jesus in them. Father, I pray that they would find the courage to grab someone here at Lifehouse, a leader, somebody in a blue shirt, Father, whether it be Lacey or Carrie or Wes or someone else, God, and they would just begin to share with them, I want to learn more about what it means to follow after Christ because I want my life, come on, I want my life to tell the story of Christ to my world. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. Stand with me as we worship together. Thank you again for joining us on the Lifehouse Newport News Podcast. If you're ever in the Hampton Roads area, we'd love for you to join us at one of our live worship experiences at 9 a.m. or 10.30 a.m. at the Regal Kiln Creek Movie Theaters. Until then, feel free to check us out at www.theaterchurchnn.com or on any social media platform. Thank you so much, and God bless.